Please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this this evening, Psalm 130. Psalm 130. You might remember a, a week or so ago I said one of the useful things of having a Psalter hymnal, which actually propels us back into the Psalms more and more, right? One of the useful things is the Psalms, as we study them, as we sing them, as we read them over and over, as we meditate, they are they are giving us and building into us a realistic worldview, a realistic view of reality. Uh, it's not all ice cream and cake, is it? <laughs> Some people want to see life as one big celebration, don't they? One big party, one right after the other, and and this is a psalm that teaches us, no, there's, there's, there are times in life when we are depressed, when we are, as the psalm starts out, in the depths, where it seems like waves of trouble come over our heads. We live in a world that is fallen and under God's curse. So, by the way, those things are two different things, the fall and the curse are two different things, and both of them have had effects. We're going to actually talk about it a little later uh, next week. But, but we, are, we are in a fallen world, and we ourselves bear the curse of God for sin. And along with that comes all kinds of trouble. And then you die. Read Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the song of Moses, right? Song of Moses is that actually kind of a downer until you get to the very end, where there's prayer. But it contrasts the eternality of God with the brevity of man's life. Now, here's a man who lived to 120 years old, and he says, our lifespan by normal means is 70 years, and if by reason of strength, maybe 80 years. But he lived to 120. But he's basically saying a normal lifespan is now 70 to 80 years. And then he says, and then we fly away, and our life is but a sigh. Uh, that's your life. But tonight in the psalm, we will see that in the midst of living in a fallen world that is under God's curse, there is still hope, and a hope in God's steadfast love. We talked about it a little this morning about God's steadfast love, but let's read Psalm 130. Song of Ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice how the psalm broadens out as it moves forward. The person who writes this, probably David, but the person who writes this is dealing with his own experience. I cry to the Lord. Out of the depths I cry. 
hear my voice, let your ear be attentive to my word. But then it broadens out uh, to the at the end of the psalm, O Israel, look at my experience in dealing with uh, whether it's depression or enemies or, or something that has overwhelmed this person. Look at my experience and learn from it, Israel. Learn from the this and put your hope in the Lord, knowing, and this is a it is at the at the very end of the psalm, after the psalmist has written about his his turmoil and his hopes, his confession, and and looking at Israel and saying, learn from this, he he comes with this final definitive statement. It's a it's a it's a statement of fact. It's not a question. It's not a, a plea. It's not a a, a a lament. It's a statement of fact. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's a we we start with with being overwhelmed by some troubles, and we end with a statement of fact that is a rock, an immovable rock. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, that's just a, a brief overview. Let, we're going to dig a little deeper into some of the spiritual and emotional dynamics behind this psalm. If we lived in an unfallen world, we wouldn't need this psalm, would we? But we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's under God's curse. Cursed is the ground for your sake, Adam. By the way, in the story of the fall, you know, you notice how God confronts Adam, who then turns around and blames his wife, who then turns around and blames the serpent. And then when God starts handing out the judgments, he starts with the serpent, goes to the wife, and works his way back to Adam. <laughs> and, and each one of his curses, each one of his judgments, actually fits the crime and we'll, we'll we'll talk about that again next year. I'm I'm, I'm really excited about this series in, on marriage, even though it's a tough one. Uh, but uh, I keep going back. These are foundational truths. Can you think of a man who really did cry out of the depths? Think of a, a man. He's in the Bible. Well, Jonah did. Yes. Or Job. Well, not Jonah, Jonah, but Job. How about Job? Job, Jonah. Jonah did too. Literally, he's in the depths. He's been swallowed by a fish, and and he prays to the Lord from the belly of the fish. And it's a magnificent prayer, by the way. Read Jonah's prayer. It's it's incredible. And uh, his experience turns him from, from, from an escapee or trying to escape God's will, to a missionary, even though somewhat unwilling, uh, somewhat unwilling, uh, but he has to learn from that. How about Job? I actually wanted you to say Job. How about Job? Job cries from the depths, doesn't he? Has any man suffered in this life like Job? Have you had your children all put to death in a, in a day, lost all your children? Have you lost all your wealth in a day? Have you lost 
all your herds, your, your cattle, your everything in a day's time. Have you been ever been reduced to sitting among the ruins of your home, scraping boils off your skin with broken pieces of pottery? And the agony of the pain of that with making you wish for death? Have you ever been in that situation? I haven't. But Job was. I'm using Job as an illustration because when we are in the depths, when we are overwhelmed, we are tempted to make two mistakes. They're opposite mistakes, but they're two mistakes, and they show up in the book of Job. They show up in the book of Job. Job's friends come, and uh, they visit with him, and, and, and I think it's really insightful that, that in the book of Job it says that when they came, they were so horrified by his suffering that for seven days they did not open their mouths. They just sat there. And then they ruined it all by trying to tell Job what was, what was really going on because they had insights, apparently, that Job, you know, that Job needed to hear. So, by the way, first application, brothers and sisters, if you're ever going to someone who's in a time of suffering, whatever it might be, go and first, before you open your mouth, just sit with them and reassure them of your companionship and your love and your concern for them. And be really careful about falling into the trap of trying to explain what God is doing. And that's the trap his friends fell into. Now, his friends had many good things to say about God. If you read the book of Job in these discourses, as they go back and forth and one friend speaks and then Job answers him and another one speaks and Job answers him, and we find out there's actually a, a fourth man who's a younger man who's been sitting there observing all this, and he pipes up and he's got his contribution to the conversation and Job answers him. But then finally God speaks and settles everyone down. But here's the thing. They said many good things about God. Many things that are true were said by Job's friends about God. But they still had a faulty view of God. That's sometimes why we fall into this temptation of trying to explain everything. They believed that God was pretty predictable. They put God kind of in a box, and we can understand God. We know why God does what he does. And Job, here's the reality of the case. After saying all these magnificent things about God, exalting God, they basically come to this. God is righteous, just true, and God rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And since clearly, Job, God is punishing you, you must be wicked. You must have done terrible things in order for God to do this to you. You see, they have what I would call a mechanistic view of God. God is predictable in this way. We understand how he's going to deal. Of course, if you've read the whole book, and especially the first few chapters, 
you know, that God's allowing Satan to bring these judges, these, these punishments or, or hardships on Job had actually nothing to do with Job's sin. Was Job a sinner? Yes, he was. But it was not that it was wrong to draw a line from Job's suffering and say, Job, you must have sinned, and God is punishing you because of your sin. These things had actually nothing to do with what Job had done. It was a contest between God and Satan. Have you considered my servant? And actually, it was, it was provoked by God. Have you considered my servant, Job? By the way, another mistake that we often make in reading Job is marveling at Job's his endurance. Who was upholding Job during this whole time? God. God who knows the end of the... He provokes this contest with Satan. He knows exactly how this contest is going to end because he is going to uphold Job in his faith. Anyway, they make a mistake in, in, in saying, Job, all your troubles are due to your sin. I'm, I'm vastly abbreviating a whole lot of verbiage throughout the book of Job. At the end of the book, God tells Job to offer sacrifices for his friends. I'm angry with your friends, Job. Please offer sacrifices on their behalf. Now, why was Job? Uh, why was God angry with Job's friends? And He says this because they have not spoken about me what is right. They had a defective view of God. They tried to explain reality to Job according to their defective view of God. Well, that's one mistake, and that's a, a mistake basically saying that when we're going through hard times, it must because, be because we have committed some terrible sin. But you know, Job, while he did not curse God, as Satan said he would, he did not curse God and die like his wife advised him to do, Job still was not unscathed through this experience. He still stumbled. And Job's particular problem is the other mistake. He's, now, I sympathize with Job in a lot, a lot of ways because he's getting bruised and battered by his friends. He's getting told all kinds of you know hard things by his friends, which is why ultimately he lashes out at miserable comforters are you. Miserable comforters are you. You're not comforting me. You're not making me feel any better here, guys. But Job commits the other error. He tries to justify himself in God's sight. No, no, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything like this, like what you're saying. See, and this is where God confronts Job. No, Job, you can't justify yourself before me because you're still a sinner. You're still a sinner, Job. You exist by my goodwill. You exist by my mercy and grace. You cannot, no man can justify himself before God. This is why, again, at the end of the book, when the story all comes together, Job says, I spoke once. I will put my hand over my mouth. 
I spoke once, I will not speak again. Job is convicted by God of his presumption in justifying himself before God. Now, how does this relate to Psalm 130? We have a temptation because we read about Job's friends. It's tempting then when we see suffering to immediately conclude that it has nothing to do with a person's sin. We we, we react against those friends and go to the opposite extreme. Oh, no, no, God is not judging you. God is not doing anything. No, no. Do you remember 9-11? I think there were some Christian leaders that kind of fell on both sides. And they named specific sins that God was judging America for in 9-11. Then we had people on the opposite extreme. A well-known Christian leader saying God was not in 9-11 at all. This was all Satan. This was all evil. God had nothing to do with it. That's wrong, too. Notice what the psalmist says here. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's the opening statement in this psalm. The person writing this is in distress. We don't know the particular circumstances of it, but this person is in distress. When they talk about being in the depths, the figure is they're they're underwater. They're being buried by wave after wave of tumult and wave after wave of, of troubles, and they don't know where to turn. There is no other place to turn but the Lord. But notice verse... If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is making a connection here between his difficulties, his trials, troubles that are overwhelming him, and iniquity. Iniquity. He feels the hand of God's displeasure on him. And he cries for mercy. It has a hope. With you, there is forgiveness. Again, there is a, an implication here that in the mind of the psalmist, there's a connection between his present difficulties and some sin. Now, he doesn't, in the psalm at least, go into detail over this. But, you know, if this is David, he, he understood this from his own experience. When he writes after the sin uh, of adultery with Bathsheba and then conspiring to have Uriah, her husband, murdered so that the, the, the pregnancy would be kept secret or, or at least covered up, and, the, and the, or at least the origins of that pregnancy covered up, He doesn't succeed. Well, he succeeds in having Uriah killed, but he doesn't succeed in covering it up because God exposes it. And then when David is confronted by Nathan the prophet, he writes a psalm of confession. He talks about, when I kept silent, my bones, I, I, I felt the weight of my guilt in my body, 
It had a physical effect on me. That guilt just weighed on me. He says, your hand was heavy upon me. He acknowledges that there was a connection between his sin and his initial trying to hide that sin and and cover it up. I kept silent. And a, a, a feeling of judgment, a sense of judgment from God. It was then when he confessed his sin that he found the relief that he needed. So the psalmist does, it seems to me, make this connection between being overwhelmed by troubles and some sin. But even if he does not explore a specific sin, brothers and sisters, we are sinners. Every day that we enjoy blessing from God is a day of mercy. And you know the distinction between grace and mercy. Grace is giving to sinners that which they do not deserve, blessings they do not deserve. Mercy is withholding from sinners that which they do deserve. Every day of blessing is a day of mercy and grace, but mercy too. No one makes a claim on God. This is why I read that paragraph about condescension. No one can tell God, you owe me. Not even a Christian. You owe me. I have merited your favor. I have earned your favor. Paul says no one puts God in his debt. That's why we live by grace and not by works. We live by faith. By, we, are, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. We do not put God in our debt. We, he weaves the tapestry of our lives with both, both judgment and mercy. No one can make a claim on God. So we should not make that mistake of reacting so much against Paul's, uh, uh, Job's friends that we say, oh, there can never be any connection between our sin and God's hand of discipline on us. It's presumptuous either way. We recognize that we are sinners in need of grace and mercy. The psalmist looks to God for forgiveness, but with you there is forgiveness. This is this is the only way out that he sees available to him, to come back to God, to seek forgiveness, to trust in God's in God. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Then he says, I wait for the Lord. I have offered my prayers. I have confessed my sin. I have sought the Lord. I have cried out for mercy. I seek God's face, and now I wait for the answer. I wait for the Lord. like the. Notice he repeats it twice, like watchman for the morning, like watchman for the morning. He's emphasizing this. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of, 
of anticipation, like watchmen for the morning who, who stand up and look to the east and see if there's the first glimmering of dawn showing in the east. He's waiting on the Lord. He does not have any doubt about the Lord's answer. Though he is anxious for the answer, he's really not in doubt because then there's this word of, of instruction to Israel. O Lord, hope in the, in the uh, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With the Lord there is steadfast love. And this, this tells us, too, that this psalm particularly is not for the general populace. This psalm is for believers. This psalm is for those who have experienced and have resting on them, on them God's steadfast love. God is love, but he does not love everyone the same way. There is a general, again, kind of a creational, common grace love that God has for all his creatures. And he feeds, he shelters, he sends the rain on the righteous and the wicked at the same time. He suppresses man's wickedness. There is this common grace love of God, and then there is a saving grace love of God. And this psalm is in the context of that second group, the saving grace, because the psalmist refers specifically to steadfast love. The steadfast love of God is the, the, is the love that is associated with his covenants and promises, a, a love that cannot be broken. I mentioned this morning, it's the love Paul writes about in, Roma, in the end of Romans chapter 8. Who can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus? Nothing. And he goes through the whole list of uh, uh, things in heaven, things on earth, powers, principalities. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who can any, bring any charge against God's elect? It is God, it is Christ who, it is God who justifies, it is Christ who died. One of the, the song that we say talked about my accuser, and the answer to my accuser is, he has died. Pardon my bluntness, bluntness, but Satan, shut up. He has died. You have nothing. You have nothing to bring before the divine courtroom. He has died. When you think of these things, and I don't know what everyone is going through at this particular time, and maybe there are particular difficulties right now in your life from any one of a number of sources, come to God. Acknowledge our sinfulness. Look to him for grace, for forgiveness, for mercy. But then find your refuge in the steadfast love that leads to promises of redemption, 
forgiveness, restoration, eternal life, blessedness with him. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast covenantal love that is secured for us by the mediatorship of Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. It is Christ who died. It is Christ who reveals the love of God for to us. It is Christ who reigns over us and will defend us from his and our enemies, ultimately defeating them. The steadfast love of God for his people expressed in his covenants and promises is secured by his only begotten Son, who has died, who has been raised, who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his people, who will come again in great power, not to put away sin, but to destroy evil. And here's that statement of fact, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You know, throughout the history of Israel, we know that there's Israel and that there's Israel within the nation. And the nation is a mixed, is a mixed body of people. And the nation of Israel has, has wicked men in it, has liars, unbelievers, false teachers, uh, kind of like the church, isn't it? We'd like to think we're so much better than ancient Israel. And not so fast. Not so fast. We have, a, we have a long history of compromising the gospel, turning our back on the, on the word of God. Unbelief riddles the mainline denominations is, and is making its way into what, we're used, what we used to call evangelical churches. And yes, they're nibbling on the edges of Reformed churches. I, grew, I was born in a church called the Christian Reformed Church. Many of you know that, know, the, know what the Christian Reformed Church is. Christian Reformed Church today, when I, was, when I was growing up, it was still Reformed, it was still sound. Today, it is a disaster of liberal unbelief. It's a cautionary tale. So within Israel, there is an Israel, you might say, of the election. Paul talks about this in, in the book of Romans. There's Israel, but there's the elect in Israel, and the elect are, are being saved. When, Paul, when the psalmist writes, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, he's not talking about everyone in the nation. He's talking about the true Israel, the Israel of faith, the Israel that is encompassed in his election. He's talking, and if we were to apply it to, to the church, the whole church that is united to Christ, first of all, in election and covenant and faith, will be saved. Their iniquities will be taken away. Many years ago, a group of college men were, I look back on that and I say college men, college boys, we were we were barely men, hardly. And we were in a dorm room discussing all the great issues of the day. 
And the conversation turned toward what heaven is like. And someone, you know, said, well, the, the Bible says they're streets of gold. Ooh, I can't wait to see that. That there's a, a stream that goes through the center of the city and, and there's, there's, there's no sun and moon because the light of God, the light, God himself is the light. All the descriptions of the marvels of heaven. And one of our group was sitting kind of in the corner quietly. He didn't say much, nod his head occasionally. And somebody said something. And suddenly someone turned to him and said, why don't you tell us what, you, what you're looking forward to in heaven? And he stopped for a minute. There was kind of a voiceness in his eye. He said, everything you've said, I look forward to. Everything we've talked about, I anticipate. But there is one thing. I will be done with sin. I will be done with sin. Is that something you look forward to? And all that glorious description of this heavenly city, Jerusalem, that comes down like a bride prepared for his bride, or bridegroom. All that glorious description. But here, I will be done with sin. He will redeem Israel from all iniquities, period, end of story, end of psalm. I long to be done with sin. Oh, pastor, you, you're not a terrible son if you only knew, if you only knew. Well, we've known great pastors who are holy men of God, if you only knew. I'm glad we can't read each other's minds. You would be so, I mean, I'm glad I can't read your mind, especially, well, I, sorry, I just had to break the tension there, but I'm glad you can't read mine either. Oh, to be done with sin. To be able to say, he has redeemed me fully, finally, perfectly from all my iniquities and every barrier that stood me between me and fellowship with a holy, righteous God, all those barriers have been taken away. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are indeed a God who hears the prayer of a sinner. You are the God who hears the prayers, who are overwhelmed perhaps with a sense of your judgment on their lives, perhaps with the weight of guilt of unconfessed sin, but you are there, and we pray our prayers of confession. We seek your face for forgiveness, and we wait for your answer, and yet our waiting is not in doubt, for we have hope in you. 
and we are assured that you will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Lord, give us this peace that passes understanding, that our sins are forgiven. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.